Welcome to The Sharp End. I'm Craig Brown, Senior Multi-Asset Investment Specialist for Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. I'm joined again by David Coombs, Head of Multi-Asset Investments. Hi. And Will McIntosh-White, Fund Manager for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. Morning. In this month's episode, David, Will and I are going to be discussing the panic at the pumps and how this got us thinking about the great energy transition, why we think the risk of a Bank of England policy error might have increased, and circling back onto energy, Vestas, the Danish wind turbine manufacturer. Before we get on with the show, though, here are the usual do's and don'ts to keep us all on the straight and narrow. This podcast is intended for professional investors and must not be shared with a non-professional audience. Any views and opinions are those of the investment manager and coverage of any assets must be taken into context of the constitution of the fund and in no way reflect investment recommendations. Past performance should not be seen as an indication of future performance. So now that's covered off with, let's start with what I think is one of the real hot topics on everyone's lips at the moment, which is energy and fuel. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's been in the queue in a petrol garage watching someone top up just a fiver in the last few weeks. Um, thankfully, I've avoided those petrol stations that have been on Facebook and Twitter with someone filling up Evian bottles with, uh, with, with fuel. But it's well publicised that this is due to a lack of drivers rather than a lack of fuel. But what we find is when we're getting to the pumps the price has actually gone up a lot. And with oil back towards $80 a barrel, this is clearly starting to pinch. Um, but at the same time, we're being told by certain people that we're at peak oil, peak oil demand, peak oil prices. But kind of have we really reached that? So I thought we'd perhaps start discussing that. So David, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I think it's uh, realism has uh, suddenly come back to hit markets and consumers and probably politicians. Although they'll probably be last to the table, I guess. We didn't believe we were in peak oil even a year ago. And you know the fact that the oil price was negative at the front end of the futures curve last year yeah, it was crazy. Transition is a very <laughs> overused word at the moment, but you know what we're seeing is a lack of planning, a lack of strategy. You know, the energy strategy in the UK, for example, to start with the UK, has been pretty poor for the last three decades, if not even before that. It's interesting, isn't it, that all of a sudden Boris in his speech yesterday is talking about nuclear again. Now, for me, this is common sense time, right? And if if we what I want to do is is draw this back to our, our strategy and remind you know the listeners that we have got a, actually a balanced energy strategy in our portfolios. We're going to talk about Vestas later, but you know we've got BP, Shell, Schlumberger, Total, SSE, National Grid. Because what you need is a balanced approach. We all recognise the need to reduce global temperatures. We all recognise the need to reduce emissions. You know, there are very few people now that disagree with that. The problem is how fast you get there. And there's a price. And the consumer's not willing to pay the price. So you can't have price caps, no storage, just in time, as we've shown last week, or the week before. It's all unraveling pretty fast. Now, if you're an optimist, you probably think this is actually a good reality check it's still a bit late. You can't just build a nuclear power station in three years, as we know. And governments have to invest in nuclear. It can't just be private. So I think this is, in a way, quite useful to have a more reasoned and balanced debate. And I think, if anything, it's reminded us we still need oil. And the people in London, the people who live outside the M25, they need petrol. They don't have the tube. Wake up. And I'm really comfortable that we have kind of ignored that 
white noise and and stuck with energy. I was looking at the price of Shell. You know, it's at six, just over sixteen pounds, recovered from nine from last year. It's been a great return. I was thinking about reducing, and I looked at the chart, and it's it's still way off twenty five quid, where it's you know re- recent highs. Will it go back? Don't know, but yeah, I think this is actually quite useful, and that's I know that it's painful but useful. It is painful. I mean, people will call it a perfect storm: the low wind, Russia supposedly reducing supply because of Nord Stream, prolonged winter hot summer. I don't really know where that was in the UK. I think I probably had my heating on in <laughs> August this year, uh, but so, supposedly around the world, because this is a global issue, worse than the UK, clearly. And the storage piece is remarkable when you actually see the figures of, uh, is it is it terawatt hours, mm. I think? I've now become a natural gas expert, obviously, as, as we you all do. You and everyone else on Twitter. That's it. That's it. But we have nine, I mean, I don't know what the quantums are, but in the UK, we have nine. Talk about that just-in-time piece. Italy have 168 terawatt hours. I mean, it's just remarkable. And so, great, we're moving to a greener economy. But as you say, it feels like the transition period has not been planned for. I mean, we've talked a lot about natural gas needing to be part of the solution longer term. Yes, we need to move away from that at some point. But all we hear is years, right? 2020, 2030, 2050. Right, that's not a strategy, that's a target, right? Mm. <laughs> Get real. Yeah. It's kind of what happened in the intervening years because this move away from fossil fuels, you start to realise how tangled fossil fuels are in everything that we do. You know, less than half of oil, for example, goes on fuel production. A lot of it goes into cosmetics, goes into medicine, goes into asphalt, goes into rubber, goes into plastics. You know, the gas thing at the moment, you know, Ocado the other day, and this may seem a weird aside, so give me a little bit of uh, scope to go through. So Ocado the other day told customers that it had problems delivering them ice cream due to the gas shortage. And you may scratch your head a bit as to why, but apparently natural gas effectively is a big feedstock into making ammonia in fertilizer production. Well, because the fertilizer company couldn't get that, they couldn't get the feedstock to make ammonia. The byproduct of making ammonia is CO2 that goes into making dry ice to put in delivery vans to deliver ice cream. So again, if you want to just move away from oil, move away from gas, it's not just about the heating of our homes or what we put in our cars. It's all of the other products and services that are so entangled with this that means that transition is so much more complicated than it's all just buying an EV and switching to a, a heat source fuel pump in our homes or something. And yet 12 months ago, that was completely ignored. Right. Stranded assets was the key phrase. Don't you hear that much last few weeks, have you? Actually, funnily enough, stranded yeah. assets are not getting asked about. Do you know, I reckon every meeting I did 12 months ago, obviously virtually, was why are you holding stranded assets? It's the end of the world. I think these oil and gas companies, you, you know my view, I think they're going to be the biggest renewable providers in the next decade. They might not make any money. But <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of execution risk around that. Huge execution risk. But so there is for the competitors and the first movers actually it you know the, the disruption is is only just starting here so you know we've got our exposure to renewables in the portfolio investors we're going to talk about and we've looked at others um, including kind of the component parts and uh, everything else but i still think one of the biggest risks to our strategy is and well this is proving it is energy prices Look, look at the gas price in the UK. It's even rising fast. Now, I'm struggling to understand that. 
you know, some people are saying it's China because, you know, um, they, they, they closed all the gas plants. Well, also the coal mines, fired stations, yeah. they, they put limits, haven't they, on how, on how much they, they're, they're, they're all, all off now. Well, like I say, those yeah. limits they're are suddenly gone. Buy, they're even buying coal but, from but there's Australia. There's a lesson to learn, right? <laughs> there's, there's an absolute lesson there, okay, that they've moved too fast without a plan B. Where's shale? Though that's yeah, that's yeah. the bit I still can't get my head around. I mean, even we had a presentation yesterday, and I think they were saying shale makes money at someone was saying thirty five bucks, someone was saying fifty bucks. Well, we're eighty. Yeah. Um, Why isn't that switch back on? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, I think some of it might be to do with maybe some of the policy ambitions of the current administration. You know, they've stopped pipelines. They made it perhaps less appealing for people to move into that shale industry, but also because of some of the storms, I believe, in some of those areas of the states earlier this year, that's hampered some of that that sort of um, oil complex in the US, but by no means the level to which we've not seen oil rigs production come back in, in, in the US. I mean, it really hasn't moved at all, really, uh, to get back to anywhere near where it was pre-COVID. So, so really, when the, I was thinking about this the other night, actually, and what struck me as being quite strange, if you think about who, who's made some of the most money in data, it's Amazon, it's Google, and it's Microsoft. How? Through the cloud. Storage. Storage is not a very you know, exciting subject, but this is the same thing. It's about storage and the lack of storage of renewables, as we well know. The company that solves that problem is going to be the Google of the energy industry, and that's where we need to focus. I don't think we know who that is yet. I'm not even sure it's been invented yet. I mean, there's a lot of players trying to. If we can find, and we won't be the first, let's be honest, and, you know, it's probably a private company at the moment, but there is there's somebody out there who is going to be the Google of storage and energy, in, in renewable energy, and that is going to be the exciting part to invest in, and that's where we need to be looking. But in the meantime, I'm very comfortable holding old energy from an investment perspective now. You know, we're not talking about ESG and morals and politics here in terms of a balanced strategy because as we have shown when the biggest risk to any investment strategy is rising energy prices and fast because it just and this is worth remembering you know the inflation chat is that you know energy prices are disinflationary over the medium term and they're bad for growth they're bad for consumer and they're bad for equity markets actually so having exposure to old energy has never made more sense. So are we going to have a prolonged elevated energy price? Because I, I can see it dropping back because as you say, at some point it squeezes demand. It's already causing all sorts of problems in production issues. You know, as you said, that CO2 plant shutting down. I kind of think it it probably ebbs and flows, but, I, but I'm sure you'll have these short-term spikes over the last, next five yeah. years. I and mean, we don't, let's be honest, we don't know. No. We are not energy specialists. And there's lots of people out there who don't let that stop them make, having a view on it, right? <laughs> um, so let, let's be very clear. We don't know. But when I look at, was it you, Craig, saying yesterday, I think it was the UK gas price went 46% up in the morning? Yeah, and then it was then it closed down in the end. Yeah. Putin to the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought that? Yeah, super pute. But um, it strikes me, and you look at the Henry Hub price, so this, this is the US price for, for gas, yeah. The volatility in these prices has been phenomenal. And I still think, yeah, is there market manipulation going on here? So to answer your question, one of the reasons I, I don't know and don't even have a view on it, actually, 
is because I'm not sure if there's market manipulation because, you know, there could be all sorts of players, whether it's financial or political players in those markets that, that this could suit quite well, actually. And I think that tends to happen over short periods and then it kind of finds some equilibrium over to So I suspect we'll have a better idea in a few weeks' time. The problem now is higher oil, as you say, technically acts as a, as a dampener on economic growth, yeah. right? Because yeah. A, it hits the consumer. It's a lower-end consumer often. You talk about your K-shaped recovery. Mm. Um, yeah, the issue is that, unfortunately, it's those with the least disposable cash who get hit first. So you've got a problem there. Uh, you've got a problem potentially on inflation. You know, So next year in the UK, you've got that cap price going up or, or under review. I mean, it's highly likely to go up next year. So you've got this problem of once again, you know, it's a drag on economic growth. It's a drag on production. Which causes uh, fuel poverty. And this is the irony, right? Fuel poverty is caused by rushing and trying to restructure an industry too fast. It's like, it's like the whole argument on heat pumps costing £10,000 to replace a boiler. As I've always said, until the economics work, you're just in, you're just in wishland. And that's where we are. And the irony being, we are creating fuel poverty globally, but even more so in the UK, actually. I think the UK is, I mean, we haven't really talked about that. The UK, I think, is even more exposed here, unfortunately. And that's going to create real political instability again, actually. And I think it means the UK is going to underperform from an economic perspective. I mean, the FTSE 100 doesn't reflect, the, you know, the... Uh, economy but I, I think the UK is, is the most vulnerable it what? definitely makes me want to stay away from UK utilities as we as we have for many years and you know we pointed to the competitive nature of the UK utility market that's why we ended up owning Wisconsin energy for example which you know where the regulator looks at that business understands the re- it prioritizes the reliability of energy I'm um, getting through because it's pretty important when Wisconsin gets to minus 30 or whatever it does. Um, and so they allow them to make a decent return. Now, yeah. obviously, to a certain extent, the consumer has to pay for that. But the reverse is people, it's almost like Icelandic banks. So people have chased, yeah. you know, high yields in Icelandic banks. They've chased cheaper and cheaper fuel. Mm. Um, and of course, I mean, I was reading an off-gem report um, highlighting how 750,000 people changed their gas supply away from the historic big players to the newer players. And of course, I wonder how many of them well, are all, currently moving all, back. All, all of those plus another million other are now trying to find a new home after those utility companies were, were, went under. But again, when you look at how some of these smaller utility companies were run, they were run almost like a tech company with a with pretty much a, you know, a, a sub 1% margin, just trying to capture market share and then thinking we can then you know start to build our margin up later. But it's a really hard thing to do in the utility space where if you get hedging wrong, well, as we've seen, you, you, you go out of business pretty quickly. Or no hedging. Or, yeah, <laughs> or no hedging at all, like I'm getting it wrong. Um, I mean, while we're talking about the UK, then why don't we sort of move on to our our next topic? It seems like an opportune time. And, you know, we did speak in our first podcast, actually, around how the UK inflationary picture could decouple from the rest of the world. And, and perhaps we are starting to see some of that playing out. But layered on top of that now, we've had recent comments from uh, the Bank of England talking about raising rates maybe towards the year, year end, which is kind of got us a little bit more worried that we could be at risk of a policy error in the UK. But surely, Will, raising rates into this environment 
it's only going to cause more problems, right? I think so. You know, we talked about this and wrote about it before that raising rates doesn't solve the energy crisis at all. Um, and as someone else rightly point out, um, it doesn't make it rain in Brazil. It doesn't solve the poor issues in LA or China um, or find us more truck drivers right now. So I struggle that that is the answer. Now, there's an argument that maybe, you know, Andrew Bailey is just kind of playing fiddle to the inflationista saying, look, we'll do it if necessary. You know, if, if inflation starts running, we're ready, you know, to sort of get some credibility there. And a bit like Mario Draghi back in the day when he said, we'll do whatever it takes. Actually, it didn't really do anything um, at that <laughs> point. Well, it didn't need to because that was strong enough. The market then said, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. they'll do it. Um, and Andrew Bailey saying, you know, we don't actually need to rate race because we'll tell people that we will if necessary. And that is, you know, job done. Now, I'm not sure I've got the confidence there. Now, I know confidence in central bankers seems to be lacking. I mean, you had Elizabeth Warren, um, which was unbelievable, Pretty talking, talking to Powell and saying, you know, that he's the most dangerous man to be leading the Fed. He's lucky that he hasn't had a financial crisis. Well, yeah, we'd only been through a yeah, pandemic. We went through a pandemic <laughs> and we didn't have one. So well played, maybe. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I've got a lot more confidence in Powell um, than I do arguably and Andrew Bailey, actually. And I do think the UK is at risk of a policy error, which is remarkable given, you know, how many times over, what, the last decade? Have we all said, well, we've got quite a lot of debt. So you know what, a bit of inflation wouldn't be too bad, you know? A bit of 2%, maybe 3% kind of works. And okay, I know we're a, a bit higher than that at the moment, um, but we do need a bit and a bit is good. Now, the problem is one can argue we've kind of got the wrong type at the moment, which is that cost push. The problem is if you try and kill cost push inflation by killing off demand, um, <laughs> then you get yourself into a real mess. But let, let's look at China. I know I've gone left field there, haven't I? Really have. But <laughs> uh, you wouldn't expected that, would you? No. <laughs> you. Um, if you think what happened to China, obviously China became, you know, 25 years ago, whatever it was, kind of the manufacturing hub of the world, if you like. Why? Cheap labor. You know, I went to that, that factory to see, you know, Hoover vacuums being made and was shocked by the lack of technology and human beings were doing the testing rather than robots, et cetera, et cetera. Why was that happening? Because labor was like ridiculously low. And then you start to get wages rising, like 10% per annum. And then, of course, if at 10% per annum, you start catching up with the rest of the world, clearly within about pretty quickly, uh, and certainly versus your competitors in Southeast Asia. And so what China saw was wages rising really fast because the one child policy and demographics obviously didn't help. So then what happens, because then they had rapid growth, well, then they had to do something about productivity. And so China had to then start bringing in, like China, Korea, starting to increase productivity through automation. And you, you, I went to some factories where that had already started. There was a massive difference, actually, between the different companies I went to see. And this is kind of Johnson's argument, right? And I got a little bit of sympathy with it. I, I, I'm not so confident it'll it'll work out, but you know, you do need rising wage costs to encourage the capex for companies to increase productivity. I don't think company CEOs who are trying to report every three months, you know, want to invest long term. These are long term investment decisions. You only do them when you need to, and if you can use labour cheaply, you will. 
and innovation comes about when you when you need it most of the time. You think about you know innovation during during wars, for example, because you desperately need it, right? Space when you're a space race, the innovation was phenomenal because you want to beat the Russians or beat the Americans. So I do think you need a problem to generate that innovation and productivity. So I think you have to go. Through, it's a bit like the energy chat earlier. I think you've got to go through this pain of margins getting tighter for a lot of companies. Earnings have had it good for 12, 13 years since 08 in terms of, you know, low interest rates, low labor costs. And in the UK, again, unique because of Brexit, clearly, on top that coming at the same time as COVID recovery and a whole structural readjustment of the economy, we are going to see wage rises in the UK. And it's not going to lead to productivity within a month. And that's Bailey's big problem, right? So I have some sympathy with the problem he's got. He's, he could be under a lot of pressure from the real, you know, the, the smart people who write in the press, you know, with the benefit of hindsight saying, raise interest rates now because you've got massive inflation because, you know, petrol pump price is 150 a litre. It's nonsense. We know it's nonsense, but the, the political pressure on Bailey will be high. And of course, the other problem he's got, he's only got the one objective, whereas Powell's got the two. He's got full employment and he's got to target inflation. And he always, well, the Fed governor tends to lean towards the full employment as the primary objective and the inflation as the secondary. Bailey's only got the one, mm. all right? And he's got an inflation number. He's got no idea any better than the rest of us, right? He's probably got a room full of 40 economists giving him 41 different predictions at the moment. So I've got a lot of sympathy with him. So whether he's good enough or not, I don't know. What is the chance of him making a mistake? Very high. I mean, Very raising high. rates into this environment, could, could it be sowing the seeds for almost like a stagflationary type situation because again you know you end up raising rates you choke off demand you've got a bit of a cost of living crisis potentially with energy prices we mentioned earlier with this k-shaped recovery so you'll have the lower income people you know not getting inflation busting pay rises next year when energy prices go up you'll have the people that probably did okay during the pandemic continuing to be okay but ultimately, as we've seen, almost any time it's been tried, that trickle-down economics doesn't really work. Are you going to get enough growth from the haves to offset the pressure on the disposable income of the have-nots? And I think raising rates into that with that backdrop, that 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 feels potentially a recipe to, to, to generate... But you, you, don't raise, you don't raise rates when the economy's slowing. Mm. Because Japan tried that in 89, <laughs> yeah. and that didn't work out so well. Well, the other problem is, is if... So we'll have to see how markets take it because when he indicated about raising rates, sterling was briefly stronger, which I was quite surprised about, actually, um, because I don't think the economy can take it. And if sterling weakens, then actually you just get more imported inflation. Um, So you just compound the issue uh, of killing off growth. So what we're saying is the UK is basically a dinghy in the Atlantic. It's literally being buffeted. And actually, the captain of the dinghy has got little he can do. Mm. or she can do, right? So what does that mean at the portfolio level? It means domestic UK, I am kind of, I'm checking out here. So, you know, what we, I think what we've done last week, or was it yeah, last week, we've reduced yeah. our sterling exposure. We've uh, we've taken a half, we've taken our hedge off the euro for the first time. Half, yeah, half. Half, half yeah, we, we didn't go the whole half. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we hate the euro so, so much, but we have for the first time reduced the euro hedge to 50% since uh, we started hedging the currencies. And we took the Swiss, Swissy off as well. And I, it, it, yeah, it's an incremental step. But I think if sterling is the price of risk of the UK, I, I'm, I'm a bit nervous on sterling. And I think 
how do we isolate what I think is, I think the whole world's got a potential inflation risk, but I think the UK's got a heightened inflation risk. I think, you know, US tips, commodities, baskets, it's not, it's probably, it's probably not gold, actually. In fact, it's not gold, in my view. It is overseas companies with pricing power. It is the Nikes and Coca-Colas of this world you want to be owning in, in this kind of world. And I think owning those, 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 those kind of commodity-related currencies, because you've got cost-push inflation on raw materials in the UK, you want to own Canadian dollars and Aussie dollars, which you know we've been adding to. So for now, the strategy has to be an anti-UK inflation bias. And, I, and I, we've gone some way, and I think we just, I feel very happy with that, actually. I think that's because we don't know. And if we don't know, we need to kind of mitigate that risk because I'm not sure anyone really knows, although they'll say they do. Excellent. So let's uh, leave the UK shores at that point after that discussion on on the fortunes of the UK and inflation. And uh, perhaps circle back to where we began the podcast, talking a bit more about uh, energy and particularly the renewable energy space. So um, Denmark, are often well known for the eponymous Danish pastry, picturesque architecture, gripping Scandi noir suspense shows that I know graces David's TV on a regular uh, occasion. And, and of course, Peter Schmeichel. Um, they've got another, perhaps, uh, less talked about um, export in the form of wind turbines from Vestas. It's a company we've held in the portfolio since around spring um, this year, and they're also in our sustainable multi-asset funds as well. But with competition from peers who are addressing the desire for 100% recyclable blades and also issues with supply chains and, and, and cost pressures putting uh, pressure on their margins, how concerned should we be about Vestas? You know, is this just a bump in a road for a long-term winner? Well, actually, I've, I've moved on from Borgen to Squid Games. So I, I'm, I'm all over Korea right now. But, so he's um, one Korean recyclable <laughs> Um, yeah, we've been worried about Vestas. I mean, the, the share price has been coming off the last couple of weeks now, as a lot of sort of growthier names and ESG names have kind of come under pressure and high PP names. We obviously, I think it was the last podcast, we talked about valuations, didn't mm. we? More, more on tech, but, you know, certainly some of these renewable names got pushed pretty high. I think going back to our, our initial com- uh, conversation, you know, I do think renewables are a massively important part of the mix and our portfolio needs to reflect that. Vestas is the number one player in terms of sales uh, last year, particularly on onshore, it's where it's, it's real kind of expertise is, although their offshore business, which is still not profitable and much smaller, but actually potentially could be incredibly profitable. It's the one area where they kind of fall behind behind Siemens. What's been really interesting, I mean, I talked about storage earlier, obviously storage is a big problem here and Vestas haven't solved that problem, is the lack of technology that, that is in wind turbines, actually. I've been quite, you know, as the more I learn about this, you know, it's quite interesting that Vestas kind of has such a big market share. It's around 16 to 18%, depending on who you believe. When actually... The, the IP is, is relatively small. I mean, these are basically steel towers with, with these kind of you know, blades, right? And there's, there's not a lot of tech. It's bearings and, and whatever. Really, the, the, the added value is all about reliability, actually, and power, and how much power the magnets generate. And, and that stands reliability and, and size and, and of the structure. And really, you only increase the power by increasing the size. And onshore, there's only so far you can go. So it's still a, an industry that's, to me, and the barriers to entry are not that high. The reason the Vestas is number one is because you know it has nailed down its supply chain 
and negotiate and and unif- and you know as a uniform supply chain what do i mean by that all of their turbines have the same parts weirdly a lot of their competitors because they've merged lots of smaller companies have got lots of different types of turbines with lots of different supply chains and they don't have that purchasing power and that's why vestas has got the best margin and what vestas are now doing is squeezing prices because they've got the best margins they're doing an amazon so I want to own Vestas. I don't want to own the rest at the moment. But the next stage is, is offshore because offshore is going to be the real game changer. But of course, offshore is much more difficult for obvious reasons. And one interesting little tidbit, right, is offshore platforms, which is probably not going to be mainstream for at least 10 years. Because a wind turbine on a platform that moves clearly brings increased complexity. It's hard enough putting a wind turbine into the seabed. Will you imagine putting one on a platform? Which companies in the world have the most expertise around platforms? It's your oil businesses. It is. <laughs> but there'll be customers too. That's the beauty. So, yes. So they will be, this is the thing, we've got those tailwinds behind this business where there isn't going to be anything stopping this growth, right? So in terms of, we talk about the energy crisis now, you know, there's no rowing. There's no rowing back. There, is, there are things we need to do. To, I mean, even I don't even see it slowing down. Actually, not in a drive towards wind. Um, I think that the, there's huge demand there, and you know that's why Vesta order but still looks pretty healthy, albeit last quarter was off marginally. So I think the long term demand is there. As I say, coming from big oil as well, because that was always our fears in the renewable space is that big oil comes in disrupts, they've got deep pockets. And there was questions, would they take over? Would they just destroy businesses? And we've seen seen a bit of both, actually. But with a business like Vestas, they're a customer, which yeah, is great. Yeah. And I mean, some people would disagree with you on the, on the tech bit, because you know, they've got anti-icing technology and they've got wind turbines specifically um, that can survive cyclones, uh, supposedly. Hopefully. <laughs> um, so I think there's a little bit there which gives them. Yeah, but it's not like, you know, barriers. Microsoft, Apple. Yeah, it's not the iPad we're talking no, about. No, it's the not. The level of tech that. is not in the same. But, yeah, no, so. it's not. But I think the barriers are still, are still relatively high. As I say, if you've got big, deep pockets, it's possibly. But you want to know the irony? They're also massive customers of copper and steel. <laughs> Mm. Well, they are. I mean, yeah, we've got to be careful where we go with this because you get into the whole commodities <laughs> route when you're talking about sustainability and it's yeah. very difficult. And obviously they're suffering from higher steel prices. It just goes to the complexity of this whole area and you need to look at it in much more detail than frankly how it seems to have been looked at for me in the last few years in the mainstream. And yeah, yes, wind is, you're right, they are... BP and Shell and Total and Exxon and all the other Chevron are probably going to be the biggest customers, people like Vestas. One of the biggest barriers to entry, going back to your point on the tech, is that actually the industry is only 25 years old. Oil and gas clearly is over way over 100 years. And so the number of people with the expertise is in quite short supply. And that still supports the big incumbents for now. So now it's time for the RMAPS mixtape for the month. I think you've all probably got the hang of what this is now, so no further introductions needed. Um, this episode, we've got David taking his second turn at putting a mixtape together for your listening delight. So uh, please take it away, David. Well, I got a lot of grief, frankly, over the first 
list, not least from you two, right. and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and Yuli, who's our production manager, who uh, gave me some real stick. So I've gone for quality this time. <laughs> we'll and see. I, and, I, and I've actually gone personal. I've gone very personal. I, I'm actually going to give, I, I limited my universe to songs I have downloaded and in most cases even paid for. Wow. I know, okay. I know. Okay. It's very analog. Anyway, so um, starting with energy and the current issues, I've gone for Royal Blood, Lights Out. Okay, very good. Um, and of course, China's had to turn back on its coal power stations. So I've gone with Greta Van Fleet, Black Smoke Rising. Wow, okay. <laughs> and then obviously I, I drove past the petrol station this morning, all calm and lots of petrol. Um, Metallica, Fuel. <laughs> Now, I can't see you having downloaded Metallica. <laughs> I love Metallica. Just for this podcast. Yeah. Excuse me, I'm with Priti Patel. I am a massive Metallica fan. That's probably the only way I'm probably with, with Priti Patel. Um, right, now, central bank policy error was a challenge, I won't lie. Um, but I, I'm, I'm quite pleased what I got, actually. Now, remember that Andrew Bailey has to uh, communicate with the Chancellor every time inflation is over 2%. So I've gone for Robert Plant. Please read the letter. And, you know, a lot of people are pushing Andrew Bailey to take this action. Uh, the Black Keys, tighten up. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then finally, what we don't want, Radiohead, no surprises. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's the first one yeah. I've heard of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you never heard of Robert Plant? Barely. <laughs> And you Millennials. Are, and you're vegan. Um, and then I'm going on to Vestas and Wind. Um, I've gone Red Hot Chili Peppers. No, I haven't gone down market. That's the Zephyr song. That's a small okay. wind, a light wind, just for those of you who didn't realise. Did you have to get your thoughts out for that one? I just remember the Ford Zephyrs that were going around in the 70s when I was a kid. And then um, Caught by the Wind, Stereophonics. Thank you. And then to end, What They Need with Ed Sheeran. Blow. Interesting. You love you love a bit of Ed Sheeran. Yeah, I, I genuinely like all of those tracks, and that is going to be that's going to kill you guys. Well, we, we shall see. Uh, it will be on Spotify, etc. Um, after this podcast, so please do have a listen. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again for our next monthly instalment of The Sharp End. If you didn't listen last time, please feel free to go back and listen to our earlier episodes. Last month, we looked at coffee as a service, and if that was one step too far, how we approach COVID reopening and how Shimano might benefit from the reopening, whilst the wheels might be wobbling a bit on the Peloton story. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcasting platforms and some other ones I've not heard of as well. And please don't forget to hit the subscribe or follow button and also rate and review us as well. If you'd like to hear more about the Rathbone multi-asset funds, please speak to your usual Rathbone sales contact or visit the website at www.rathbonefunds.com. Thanks again. Thanks again.